So wait, what? are listening to So Wait What podcast. Getting your driver's license is a rite of passage for most teenagers. It's a new sense of freedom, another level of responsibility. And in the same vein, typically it becomes a rite of passage to have to explain to mom and dad your first fender bender or your first ticket. And with that newfound responsibility comes a lot of life lessons That might be learned the hard way. I called my friend Jennifer to talk to her about her rite of passage. You know, the one where you call your dad and tell him what happened to your car. Here's Jennifer. My dad and I had gone to this car dealership of someone that we know, like a a family friend, and uh, picked out the car. But it was a Saturn SL2. So it was silver. And it was four doors, and I think it was a 95. I never really paid attention to it until I got one of my own, and then, you know, you start seeing that car everywhere and noticing things about it. And the headlights were a lot closer together. So, like, at night, you could tell a Saturn, you know, from way down the road coming up on you because the the shape of the headlights, but... I, you know, I was just picturing, like, when you were saying that its its headlights were close together, I just sort of pictured, like, sometimes people have eyes that are too close together. <laughs> and everyone's eyes are supposed to be an eye between each other. So it's like your eye, you measure that, then you put another eye in between that, measure that, and then is the second eye. But sometimes... Oh, really? Yeah. Sometimes people can't fit that, that middle eye in, in there. And I think that's probably... <laughs> What the Saturn would be. No, I'm, I'm not going to be able to look in the mirror the same way. <laughs> I mean, the good thing is that they don't have to fit an eye in the middle. So people that have Saturn eyes is what we call them. <laughs> <laughs> good old Saturn eyes. Good old Saturn eyes. I'd like to make a note that I wouldn't suggest you measuring the distance between your eyes. It might affect your self-esteem moving forward. I continued with Jennifer on the fateful day of her receiving her car on her 16th birthday. So, uh, yeah, that was September 21st. It was the big party. We have a video of me driving <laughs> my aunts and my grandfathers and grandmas around. Like, I'd pull out of the driveway, go down the street and around the corner and come back and pick up somebody else and then go take them for a ride and come back around. And um, Yeah, it was a fun day. I've never thought of it this way, but really the safest I've probably ever driven was the first few weeks of driving when 25 miles an hour felt like you were going 100, you know, and you'd slow down like a half a mile before you got there and you just, (laughs) you just were aware of so much. And now it's secondhand, I think, yeah, maybe I should go back to the basics. Well, it's funny too, because in that video, you know, looking back on it, it's, it's so funny because I'm, I'm in the car and my, my grandfather, my mom's dad had gotten in, you know, you see me pull down the driveway and it's the slowest takeoff ever. <laughs> it's like easing off the clutch and easing on the gas and, you know, two hands on the steering wheel and very cautiously going down the driveway or, you know, such a anticlimactic, you know, 
Here's her first ride. There she goes. A few short weeks later, Jennifer's comfort level of jiving began to increase. So October 10th, 1999 was a Sunday, and I had been at church that morning, and then in the evening, the youth group or the youth choir had choir practice at the church and my friend Katie was also at the practice and she had asked me if I could give her a ride to her aunt and uncle's house after practice because her parents were out of town and I thought you know of course I can I have a car I you know I can drive you there so we get in the car and get on the main road, and her aunt and uncle live in this community that was kind of off the the beaten path. So in Ocala, there's 441, which is like the old school main drag, and then we turned off of there onto this dirt road that was like in a, a wooded area, and then her aunt and uncle's neighborhood was beyond that. Um, I guess maybe maybe like half a mile or a mile down that way. And so we turn on the road, and I don't remember what we were talking about, but the radio was going. We're just, you know, laughing and having a great time. And we're driving along, and we come up to a railroad crossing. It's kind of up on a little bit of a hill, and there's the railroad sign. But it was like the wooden sign, you know, with the cross beams, so no, like, arm that came down, no flashing lights, anything like that, just a, a sign. And so we go to Crest the Hill, and the car just, like, lurches forward and stops. This awful, awful, like, grinding metal sound under the, the floorboards. I can you know, feel the car screeching underneath, and it just stopped. And so we both, you know, sit in silence for a second. And I said, am I on the track? There were two tracks side by side. It was like a, you know, um, one moving one direction, one moving the other. And my car was on one set of tracks. I never made it to the second one. So I cut off the radio. I try to put my car in drive and, you know, rev it up. It's not going anywhere. So I throw it in reverse hit the gas again, try to see if I can back up, and it's just not going anywhere. It's just sitting there. So get out of the car. Two of us try to physically push it backwards. It was kind of hard, I guess, to process at that moment because I was just stunned. Like, it just didn't process as it actually happening, you know, because it wasn't like... We had hit any kind of rough terrain before then or no, no sign that this was going to be a rough road or a rough drive. Uh, it was just like, you know, somebody reached out from the sky and just stopped the car. I reached in, I grabbed a flashlight, and to this day, I always have a flashlight in my glove compartment. So we grab that and we decide, okay, we'll go to her uncle and aunt's house and we'll get help. And this is, you know, in the days before cell phones, which kind of makes me laugh now because it's one of those stories that it wouldn't play out the same way if it happened in 2019, you know, um, because 
neither one of us had a cell phone on us and we were going to run to her aunt and uncle's house and I had never been there uh, so she's like well it's down this way and it's you know a, a dark night a wooded area all we've got is the light from this little flashlight and my car headlights and so we we take off running and I so remember like I it was like a sensory overload. Like I remember hearing myself breathing hard. I remember feeling my pulse like in my ear, you know, and your pulse is just racing and your ears almost, it feels like you're underwater. Um, I remember I had on sandals and like little pebbles and rocks getting stuck in my shoes, but I just kept running. Um, and I remember asking her, do trains come up and down that railway? And she said, I don't know. We got in a, a little bit down the road, maybe like a quarter of a mile down the road, and I hear the train horn behind us, and I just remember hearing it. It was like one little short burst, and then this long, steady, so, and then silence. So we, you know, ran even faster, and I remember her aunt and uncle's house you could see it up in the distance and they were unloading groceries and kind of walking in between you know the van and the, the door and I just remember Katie screaming at him as we were running up you know Uncle David Uncle David Jennifer's car is on the track and you know just confusion you know him trying to figure out what she's screaming about what's going on um, by this point we're both you know, hysterical and crying. He said, okay, you go in the house and I'll go take care of it. Um, so we went in the house. So the first thing I did is I walked in their bathroom and I kind of hunched over the, the vanity where the sink was. And I just remember thinking like, this isn't real. This did not happen. I, you know, this is a dream. And then I think I even, like, hit my face a couple times, just trying to be like, okay, just snap out of it, you know, get it together. And then realizing, no, this this is not a dream. This is actually happening. And I remember walking over to their kitchen, and they had, like, the white phone mounted on the end of the cabinet, you know, on the little sidewall, and the phone's in the cradle and then it had that like super long cord, you know, <laughs> that goes down to the floor. Yep. And, um, walking over to there and just thinking, I need to call my dad. So I picked, I went to go pick up the phone and I look at my hand and my hand was shaking and I'd never had that happen before where it was like just uncontrollable. I couldn't even like braced my hand to pick up the phone because it was shaking so bad. And so I, I turned to Katie and said, um, will you please call my daddy? And so she picked up the receiver and I'm, you know, uh, telling her the phone number. And I snatched it right back out of her hand. And I heard my dad's voice, you know, hello, this is Philip. And 
and this voice that like I didn't even recognize it did not sound like me just one word daddy and like you could you know hear him kind of straighten up in his chair and, and lean forward he said faith what's wrong and I said first of all we're both okay and then I just lost it I mean I was trying to hold myself upright by leaning up on the counter and kind of pushing up a little bit and um I remember looking back on that moment and realizing, like, I'd never experienced that before, where it's not crying, it's not even weeping, it's like wailing, and um, just my whole body, you know, was reacting. I remember him on the other line saying, okay, are you hurt? And I said, no. I said, is, is Katie hurt? No. Okay. Is anyone around you hurt? No. I said, okay. He said, babe, it's, it's okay. Uh, doesn't matter what happened. Just tell me what's going on. And, and in my mind, I was like, oh, if you only knew. Like, how do you, how do you even start to explain what, what has happened? And so I said, so we're driving down the road. We came up on a train track. And I said, daddy, my car, it's just I don't know what was going on. I don't know what happened. It just stopped. And we got out of the car. We tried to move it. It wouldn't move. We, you know, um, so we got out of the car. We're running to our house. And I heard the train horn. I don't know if the train has hit anybody. I don't know what's going on. So then he said, well, where, where are you? I said, I'm at her aunt and uncle's house. He said, okay, where is that? And I was still confused. He's confused. He doesn't know where they live. And so it's kind of like backtracking. Oh, and before we would hang up, he, he, uh, my mom was driving home to Ocala from Tampa that day. And so he goes, do me a favor, call Michael, who's my younger brother, who was at the house in Ocala, and tell him that when mama gets home to call me. Okay. So he had a cell phone. So we, we, we hang up the phone. I call my brother, who is 14. I mean, I, I can't imagine it not being obvious that I have just been crying my heart out. Oh, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> I just got off the phone with Dad, and Mom's coming home. I wish she gets home. Tell her to call Daddy on his cell phone. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So my dad, he had gotten down to the dirt road, driving along, and he just sees the train stopped on the tracks. It's not moving, not going anywhere. And he goes, oh, okay. So he got out of his truck, and he started running alongside the train and ran for, you know, several cars and then got to the end of the train and realized, oh, this is a caboose. So he turned around and started running toward the other end. After Jennifer's dad had gone to the other end of the train and found what he found, he went to go find Jennifer at her friend's uncle's house. And so I walked out in the backyard and saw my dad walking up to me, and I just remember, like, kind of collapsing in his arms and just crying and crying and crying and crying. 
After her reunion with her dad, Jennifer decides to take the walk with him to find out what happened to her car. And we, we go walking back toward the track. My car is crumpled up under the front of this train. Um, and the train lights are on. <laughs> the little Saturn headlights are still on. It must have had a diehard battery because the, the, the little beams were still shining up. But this time, like, up into the sky because it was folded up and under. And so the impact was right behind the driver's seat. So it slammed into the, the side of the car just behind the driver. So the driver's side, but behind the driver's seat. Um, and the driver's seat was folded up and like pushed into the gear shift and just flat. And the, the front of the car was bent around, the windshield was broken. And then there's just like, just like raw steel up against the train, you know, like the paint is gone. There are pieces that are gone of the car and it's just, like wrapped around the front of the train and then kind of even underneath the train a little bit. And the conductor was standing there and um, there weren't any passengers on the car. It was, you know, a freight train. It was a CSX freight train. And so I remember my dad introducing me to him. He said, this is my daughter. This is the girl that was in the car. And this is, you know, this is the conductor. And so I, I shook his hand. And he said, I'm so glad you're okay. And so we're all kind of just standing there with the weight of, you know, this train and all three of us just visibly shaken that, you know, what could have been and looking at this car. And, and I think when I saw the car, it was just immediately obvious, like I would have died. You know, there's, there's no question about that looking at the impact, the location of the impact, just the, you know, the force of the driver's seat being shoved up into the, the front of the car. I mean, there's just no way that I would have survived that. The official police report, the conductor said that he had just gotten the train up to 80 miles an hour. He kind of came around this turn, saw the headlights, slammed on the brakes, and he estimated that he was going about 55 when he hit it. Um, and it carried it over half a mile down the, the tracks. Um, it may have been closer to a mile. I'd have to go back and look at the report, but at least half a mile down the tracks before it finally came to a stop. You know, it was, it was multiple, multiple cars on the back of the train. You know, it just had all the momentum in the world. So I was standing there with my dad and the conductor at the front of the, the car. And then, you know, for a few more hours, I guess, you know, there's still procedure that has to be followed. The conductor had to make the call. Um, they had to bring out a wrecker to physically, like, pull my car out from underneath the the front of the train and load it up on the back of this, you know, wrecker. And, you know, police had come out because they had to file a report. And so <laughs> the funny part there is so the official citation, like I, didn't, I wasn't charged or anything, but the official report said that I was improperly parked on a railroad crossing. <laughs> As if there's a proper way to park on a railroad crossing. 
I still felt like I am the world's worst driver. Like, I can't believe I got stuck on a railroad track. And I remember there were a couple of people, been, you know, trying to be helpful or kind or whatever. And like, this is mortifying. Not only have I done this really awful, stupid thing, but everybody's going to know about it, <laughs> you know. Um, and then there was some guy, too, that I think he may have been drunk. <laughs> this random guy who's walking along. He's like, hey, what happened here? <laughs> Her dad also went back to the scene of the accident and decided to clean up. I guess no one else is going to clean it up. So he literally just walked along the train tracks for that half mile or however long it was and just picked up pieces of my car and put it in the back of his truck bed to, to clean up the, the site. So that was quite the visual, too, to look like, oh, my gosh, there's part of my car. There's, you know, there's the fender. There's a chunk of the... Uh, side door, there's part of the windshield just all piled up like a, you know, junkyard. There were potholes in that railroad crossing. And the people who lived in that neighborhood just knew when they were going over the tracks to go over to the left-hand side and not drive on the right-hand side of the road of that crossing. My tire had gone down in this pothole, gotten wedged, you know, I... I just didn't know. And how would I have known? You know, the, the locals, the people who lived back there, knew to go over to the left-hand side. But why Why on earth would I have done that, just not knowing, you know? Flash forward, the insurance company actually sued CSX for negligence. And they said they failed to maintain the crossway. That was the kind of the official charge, that they had failed to maintain it. You know, every now and then the conversation turns to car accidents or, you know, crazy driving stories. And usually that's the trump card if I'm like, well, my car was hit by a train. So, <laughs> you know, that's the, no one can, can top that one. <laughs> so if you are in the position where you have your first car and either got your first ticket or your first fender bender, I would recommend to have your parents sit down and listen to this podcast and tell them how much worse it could have been before you tell them your story. So wait, what? What? You are listening to So Wait What Podcast.